Well, this evening we are in Revelation chapter 4, and I hope you're there in your Bibles. And I begin this evening with a question. How many here this evening are looking forward to going to heaven? Raise your hand. I don't know one person who would say, no, I'm not really looking forward to it. You know, uh, you know I'm not, eh, I guess if I have to, you know. Almost, of course, every Christian that I've ever met, if asked that question, would respond in that exact same way. Oh, yes, I'm really looking forward to going to heaven. However, though, I've discovered that if you start asking people about heaven, they know very little about it. And most of what they do know are misconceptions, are uh, ideas that have been put forth that don't have any scriptural foundation. You know, if I were to ask you to describe heaven, how would you describe it? What about heaven are you looking forward to that creates such anticipation in your own heart to go there? The Bible actually has very little to say about heaven itself, but it has a lot to say about the occupant of heaven. For the occupant of heaven is God himself. And it is for that reason that I desire to go to heaven because I desire to be with my God. And this evening we're going to be going on an excursion together. So I hope you've packed a bag. We are going to have an opportunity to glimpse into heaven. Heaven is going to be opened up to us and we are going to get a two-chapter glimpse of what heaven is like. And we are going to discover that it may be different than what you have anticipated. For there's actually a focal point to heaven. There is a prominent position within heaven that must be acknowledged, and that is God himself. And that position is the position of his throne in the throne room of heaven. It is this throne room that we are going to enter into this evening. And we are going to see what John saw as we read through the next two chapters that must be read together. They should not be separated. For chapter 4 is the uh, foundation to everything that occurs in chapter 5. To understand what happens in chapter 5, you must understand chapter 4. To truly appreciate chapter 4, you must then uh, understand what happens in chapter 5. And tonight we are going to enter into heaven and we are going to read and witness for ourselves one of the greatest occurrences that ever took place in heaven. And we get to be part of it this evening. And as we read through these chapters, we are going to see things and we're going to hear things that we might be surprised to find in heaven. Some of the imagery is going to confuse us, undoubtedly. For there is no doubt that for heaven to be heaven, there has to be a mystery to it. If we were to truly understand everything in our finite minds of an infinite place, I don't think we would long with the same anticipation for it. You know, the very first time someone goes to Disney World, they're really looking forward to it, right? But the second or third time, the luster seems to wear off. 
And the magic seems to dissipate and disappear because the mystery is gone. That aspect of magic is no longer there because you've already experienced it. And even though John is giving us this glimpse into heaven, even John himself is confronted with things that he never anticipated possibly seeing. And we discover that another apostle who is one of the most articulate writers of the New Testament was given a glimpse of heaven. And he was so, uh, it was so profound that he could barely articulate verbally or through the pen in what he saw. And that was Paul. I love that era of mystery to heaven. It gives me something to look forward to. And I'm glad that my finite mind can't completely grasp all that heaven is through verbal communication and simply reading a text. I'm glad there's more to it. There's a depth and a breadth and a width to it that I will not appreciate or truly understand until I'm in that perfect form before my Lord with him for all eternity. And then when I get there, I have eternity to discover it all. How about that? So as we begin this evening, we find the stage being set for us in Revelation chapter 4. And proceeding into Revelation chapter 4, we now enter the third and final stage of the book. Remember in chapter 1, where Jesus says, write all that was, all that is, and all that is to come. And we saw what was in chapter 1. We saw what is in chapters 2 and 3 as we concluded our study of the seven churches of Revelation. And now we are being given the privilege of seeing what is now yet to come. And we begin by John being summoned to heaven, taken to heaven. Finding himself, though exiled on the island of Patmos, given the vision of heaven. And everything he sees in chapter 4, he writes for us to set up the, the event of chapter 5. And like, like I said earlier, I think it's one of the most extraordinary events that heaven has seen. So as we begin, we begin in verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice which I heard speak to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carlinian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From their throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. 
And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature uh, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who, are, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. From the very beginning, it would be easy to be distracted by the event of John just simply being taken to heaven and given this glimpse of the throne room of God. But in the Greek grammar, we have words that carry emphasis. And those words then become the focal point of what John is trying to say. And within the grammar we discover that what John wants us to truly see and to discover is that in the center of heaven itself is the throne of God. That is the focal point. That is what John wants us to see here in chapter 4. As one commented, he said, It is of first importance to know that the God who dwells in heaven possesses absolute authority over the universe. It was a symbol. It was something that would encourage the readers in the first century going through what they were going through under the horrible oppression of the Roman emperors, the persecution that they were facing and enduring, to know that God is on the throne in heaven that He is sovereign over all things, that He is in control of all things, and that He is the center of all things. It is the throne room of God. And this is not the first time that we discover the throne room of God. For another one in the Old Testament got a glimpse of the throne room of God. And we find that occurrence in Isaiah 6, 1-7. through In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, that is Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, listen to these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah had a glimpse of what John is recording for us here. Isaiah gives us a peek. John gives us a greater look. And in both cases, the center is God sitting on his throne. In the case of Isaiah, the very first thing that he discovered about himself when confronted with the throne room of God was that woe unto him, for he was a man of unclean lips. What he first discovered in the reality of the throne room of God was that he himself was a sinner before God and was in need of a Savior. 
John is being given this glimpse. And we find the description given to us there very profoundly. And he doesn't characterize for us in any type of caricature God himself, but just simply describes him by the colors in which he sees. When it talks about jasper, most believe it's the diamond color, that clear sparkle of a diamond. Or uh, carnelian, or some of yours would say uh, saffris stone, the deep, rich reds that are found there. And then engulfed in a rainbow of emerald. And undoubtedly, that rainbow of emerald would have resembled that which was known to those in the Old Testament as the rainbow that was given in the promise of the withholding of judgment until God saw it fit. But that's what John wants us to discover. He wants us to discover that God is on the throne. That that is the only place proper for God to reside. Let me ask you something very personally. This is something that you have to consider for yourself. Throughout the Bible itself, we find the words sovereign used with God. In the New Testament, another word is introduced with Christ, and that word is preeminence. We find the words king and lord associated with Jesus. Heavenly Father uh, assigned to God the Father himself. What role is proper for God to fulfill in your life? Where must he reside in your personal priorities? If he's the king of all things, king of kings, lord of lords, sovereign over everything, preeminent in all things, where does Christ place in your life? This is a question that many Christians never have asked themselves. They are very willing to embrace the idea that Jesus is their savior, allowing them entrance into heaven the place that they desire to spend all eternity, even though they know nothing about it. It's like taking an atlas and saying, where do I want to go on vacation? And just randomly picking here, not knowing anything about it. In fact, one time I went to a conference and I did something just similar to that. I was going to New York City and I needed to find a hotel that was reasonably priced. So I went to a map and I saw that, you know, New Jersey's not too far away and this town named Elizabeth sounded nice. So I'll find something nice there. I think I should have been concerned when I was pulling into the parking lot that it had armed gates around it. Okay? Some people, I think, have that kind of concept of heaven. They want to go there, but they don't really know what it's all about. And I think part of the reason that they don't know what it's all about is because they don't understand the priority in which God must place in their personal lives. See, my entrance into heaven will be the reality that God is on the throne. But that's not when that position should begin. God should begin today being on the throne of your heart. He is our Lord. He is our King. We have died to ourselves. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. He is the one that bought and paid for me, not with gold and silver and precious stones, but by his own blood. I am no longer my own. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What does all of that mean? 
It means that I have adopted the position that Christ adopted before the Father, and that is, not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord. What a different Christianity that is to what many have embraced today, where Jesus is not the priority, he's not the preeminent, he is a mere supplement to everything else in life. And when I need a little bit of God, when I'm going through a tough time, I take him off the the, the shelf, I rub his belly and hope that something good appears. It sounds silly, but I really think that's the mentality that a lot of people bring into their Christianity. The first thing I see about heaven is that the throne room of God is there and he is being worshipped day and night by these outlandish individuals because we move from the throne room of God the throne of God and him who is sitting on it to those who are in the presence of God within the throne room. We find these individuals, these 24 elders mentioned here in our text. Who are they? And then we have these four living creatures that sound pretty bizarre when you read, through, when you read it and you look at the description in which John is giving us. But at the end of the chapter, they're all doing the same thing, aren't they? They're worshiping God. And they're worshiping God for a very specific reason. They are worshiping Him because He is the God of all creation. That's very important to understand. The content of the worship that they are worshiping for, if you look in verse 11, for you have created all things. It isn't an aspect of His character, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, etc., His mercy, His grace. But it's an element of his creation, which therefore sets the stage for chapter 5. But let's take a look at some of these that are around the throne room of God. It is interesting to me that Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, reads as such, and I'll read them to you. This is when Ezekiel saw what he saw, and this was his record of it. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance of sapphire and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness with a human appearance and an upward form what had been the appearance of his waist. I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of a fire enclosed all around. And downward from what he had, uh, the appearance of his waist, I saw it as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the clouds on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. That's Ezekiel's description of the same thing. That, That glimpse into the throne room of God. And though they're trying their best to articulate it all. Can't you sense that it's still falling short? That the vocabulary that we have to work with is insufficient to capture all that heaven truly is and to describe the throne room of God. But in the throne room, we are immediately introduced to the throne itself and a rainbow which speaks of His omnipotence and His mercy. And these are significant symbols in a book with the overriding emphasis of judgment and the kingdom of God. To the original readers, this would have been incredibly comforting. 
by understanding that while their world was most uncertain, heaven was properly focused and stable at all times. Meaning that we should read such a passage and be encouraged by it like the early church was because their lives were incredibly uncertain. Their circumstances were horrific in many cases. And yet they found encouragement in these words knowing that God is on the throne. But see, sometimes we can't appreciate that today. Because our understanding of God is that God is here to help me get what I want that I can't get for myself. He's to make everything wonderful here on this earth. He's to do for me what I can't do for myself. He's to, you know, work when I am when I can't do anything more. And he's simply in many minds today a means to an end. But the sovereignty of God, if we truly approach him properly, we have to adopt the same mentality that Christ had, and that is not my will be done, but your will be done. It's the only proper relationship we can have with God. And this is why so many are getting frustrated with God today, because they are seeking what they want, not what they need. They're seeking the fulfillment of their own will with God's help, rather than submitting to God and fulfilling His will for them. But the book of Revelation tells us very clearly that this throne room is an indication that he is the one that holds that place of preeminence. And everyone around him seems to understand that. The 24 elders, for example. Who are these individuals? Well, we know they are clothed with white, the Bible tells us very clearly here. They have crowns upon their heads and they are seated on thrones. The crowns that they wear are different than the crown that Christ wears. The crown that Christ wears is a diatom. This is a stephanos, which is a victor's crown. Uh, it's a, a wreath that one would be given after winning a competition, an Olympic competition of some sort. It, it, it's given in, for victory. So these are individuals that have been given victory through Christ and then exalted to this position around the throne room of God. So who are these individuals? I believe that they originally uh, are parallels to a glimpse of heaven that was given to us here on this earth, uh, and that was in the temple itself, through Judaism, through the setting of the Levitical priests before the temple. For before the temple, did you know that the Levitical priests were divided into 24 groups and they would serve and rotate within the temple? There was also 24 orders of the Levitical, uh, the Levitical priests for prophecy and praise, and this can be found in 1 Chronicles 24 and 25. See, the temple was meant to be an earthly glimpse of what laid ahead. It was supposed to be a glimpse into the into the kingdom of God and into heaven. And God gave us a glimpse of those things through the temple, through the Levitical system, etc. All to culminate within the person of Jesus Christ. Now the kingdom of God is supposed to be displayed through our lives. For we are the temple of the holy God, living God. 
And when people come to church and they hear the people worship, they're meant to get a glimpse of heaven. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God here on this earth. That is who we represent. Our citizenship has been uh, replaced. We're no longer simply Americans. We're Christian Americans. And my loyalty to Christ comes first. And then my loyalty to my nation comes second. And that's the way it's meant to be. And God's trying to give people a glimpse of what could be through our lives. But that'll never happen if we are approaching God and walking with God for selfish purposes, for self-serving reasons. It is only when we adopt the mentality of Christ that we will be able to live out what God desires us to live out that others may see Him in us. And that is, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. So the 24 elders appear to be a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. If you read through the Gospels, there were many times that promises were made that they would sit on the throne, etc. And it's a, it's a resemblance of the saints. Old and New Testament alike. And then we are given these seven spirits of God, which is a unique term for the Holy Spirit only found in the book of Revelation. We've already seen it a couple times. And we find that symbolized in the seven burning torches that are there in heaven before the Lord. And then we come to these four interesting living creatures. What are these guys all about? Again, if you look, uh, it says very clearly that around the throne, this is found in verse 6, On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around, within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is... And who is to um, who was, who is, and who is to come? It is interesting that Isaiah said that he f- saw these creatures before the throne that had six wings. You remember, he said the same thing. Uh, Ezekiel tells us about these individuals, th- these creatures in heaven. That's the word is used there: creatures, the four living creatures. So we have biblical pres- uh, precedents for these four living creatures. Who are they? Most believe that these are cherubim. And these are a select group of angels that are found in Old and the New Testament. And some have tried to assign meaning to their figurement. You know, why a lion? Why an ox? Why a a man? Why an eagle? And one of the most common uh, parallels is that, well, within these cherubim, are found the, the, the emphasis of the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the areas of conjecture and speculation that is often assigned to uh, symbolic uh, imagery in the book of Revelation, but doesn't really have any scriptural foundation. For example, in many of the commentators that I read through very quickly... Their conclusion was that Matthew's gospel, that represents the lion, showing Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Mark is seen as the ox, a gospel showing Jesus as a humble servant, a worker. Luke sees him as a man, the gospel showing Jesus as a perfect man, the second Adam. And John sees uh, Jesus as an eagle, showing Jesus as the man from heaven, the sky. Still this approach has other interpretations also. Well, in actuality, I went back and I tried to find where that thinking came from. And the reason I bring this to your attention today is I think that some of these points of conjecture and speculation can cloud our understanding of the text itself. In actuality, this started in 170 AD by a man named Irenaeus. But his conclusion was this, that all attempts to equate the living creatures with the four Gospels such as John with the lion, but all the other ones said that John was the eagle. Luke is the calf, but all the other ones said he was the man. Matthew was the man, but no, no, no. Matthew shows him as the lion, and Mark is the eagle. See, they didn't get it right. They didn't even quote Irenaeus right. And they come up with this conjecture, and imagery is placed upon these things When in actuality, all we do know for sure is that Isaiah saw him, Ezekiel saw him, and now John saw him. So in the throne room of heaven itself, there are these four cherubim that have characteristics in such a way. And we don't honestly know biblically how it all fits together, but we know that they exist. They have eyes everywhere, which we are going to find out often means that they were Uh, knowing that they could see all things, that they were vast in knowledge, an imagery that was often used at that time to symbolize that reality. So I want to make it clear that as we look at the book of Revelation, we're taking a very first look at it, as it were. And we're trying to see what it actually says using the Old Testament, which I believe is the key, the foundation to understanding the imagery in the book of Revelation itself. So before we assign meaning or we try to fully understand the symbology of the book of Revelation, let's simply take it for what it is. Let's understand it for what it is. They are cherubim. They are angels. And it is part of that mystery that we can't fully understand from our finite position. It'll be interesting when we get there and we see it for ourselves But I have a funny feeling that when we are confronted with the reality of these four living creatures, the first thing on our mind is not going to be to go up to them and say, hey, what are you guys all about? I read about you. I think after we pick ourselves off the floor, you know, from our place of just bowing before the risen Lord, God the Father on the throne, we see these four living creatures. But John's emphasis is not on the identity of the 24 elders or even the seven spirits of God that he mentions or on the four living creatures. The emphasis is actually found in the last portion of chapter 4 and that is the fact that all of them appear to go into this position of worship. We don't know, you know, all of them, the 24 elders specifically and these four living creatures all worship him who is on the throne. And that's very important for us to know. Verse 9 of chapter 4. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. That's so important to understand. When we are rewarded for those things that we have done in Christ, the crowns in which we receive that Paul talks about, that Peter talks about, are not meant for us to retain for all of eternity to pride ourselves upon our reward comparing one another to one another's reward, looking and comparing the size of each one's wreath or crown upon them. But the last act of contrition, the last act of worship, is knowing that everything that God did in and through our lives that glorified himself here on this earth was not done in our own ability, in our own strength. It was Christ through us. It was the Spirit through us. Therefore, who should truly get credit for all that is done in and through our lives? Him. And how is that displayed? By the crowns being tossed at his feet. Isn't that extraordinary? It really puts things in perspective. And then they break out and worship him saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive power and honor, I'm sorry, glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There are two portions of this praise, this short doxology, this one-verse doxology, that to the original reader in the first century, they would have been amazed by. And that is the fact that the exact same language that was used to approach and to to honor Caesar is being used here for God. And that phrasing is, worthy are you. It's the same Greek phrasing that is found over and over and over again in numerous accolations onto Caesar himself. And so they discover that John is now writing and saying that the true adoration, the true worship should be pointed to God himself and not to this so-called deity, this so-called individual who calls himself God. It should only be retained and used for God. And then the second portion of that is found here. It would have said, you are worthy, O Caesar, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, but they insert our Lord and our God. It's interesting. Play on words there. Because God is in control. The first thing we've discovered about heaven is that the throne room of God is there. The second thing we've discovered about heaven is that, I think I forgot to say that, is that God is on the throne in heaven. It's not a vacant throne. It's an occupied throne. And number three, we discovered that in heaven, he is worshipped day and night for all eternity, glorifying him for being the God in which he is, specifically for all that he has created. And this moves us into chapter 5 in the grand finale. To understand chapter 5, we have to understand chapter 4. 
In chapter 5, we begin, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat, uh, who, uh, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then between the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song. This is the climax the stage is set in four. The throne of God, Him seated on, seated on it. Those who are occupying the throne room around Him. A angel then makes a proclamation amongst all of them. And our attention is being drawn now to the to the overall, and it's zooming in now on this one occurrence. And specifically, John wants us to see the scroll that is in the hand of he who sits on the throne, who is none other than God the Father himself. And that scroll is written on the inside and on the outside. And it is sealed with seven seals. And an invitation is made through this grand proclamation that goes throughout everywhere. That is what the phrasing means. In heaven above, on earth, and under the earth. That means everywhere. An invitation is made to all creation. Is anyone worthy to come and to take the scroll that is in the hand of the Father? And when no one responds, John reacts in a very unusual way. A way you may not anticipate, a a way you may not understand. He begins to weep loudly, saying, what is going on? For John appears to know the, the identity of this scroll. He seems to understand its value and its worth. And he appears to know the necessity of someone being able to take it and to execute it. So the very first thing we have to ask ourselves is, why was John so upset? What does that mean? Why did he react the way that he reacted? Because no one in heaven was found worthy or on the earth or under the earth. 
There has been many ideas put forth concerning the identity of this scroll. But most of them would not have made sense to those who originally read this letter and therefore are dismissed. There are two that would have been familiar to them and to us due to the scriptures in which we have today, the Old Testament, and to them, the cultural relevance of what is taking place. This scroll is either a deed, a contract deed, or a will. Something that needs to be executed, needs to be um, fulfilled, to go forth. And most believe that what is occurring right here is that God is asking all of creation who is worthy to open the deed to the final act of redemption. The return of all things to the way it once used to be. Why? Because God created all things and all things when he created them were good. Sin was then introduced through one of his creation, his creation man. Man was given at that point or prior to that point of sinning dominion over all of creation. The animals, the plants, the fish, the birds, the sea, the land, the earth, everything. They forfeited the right of dominion at the fall. And so therefore God's plan therefore uh, could not continue to go forth in and through man. It was impossible. And to execute this last phase of judgment, this last phase of reconciliation, something, someone had to be worthy to take and to execute it. One who was perfect. One who stood above the rest. One who corrected the sin of Adam in his life. Though Adam, through Adam all sinned. But through one Christ Jesus, we are now made right with God. That's what we see occurring here. To execute this final stage, there was no one able to do it. John understood the ramifications of it and began to weep bitterly over it. Throughout the Old Testament, we had glimpse of this, of this scroll. Many believe this is the scroll that Ezekiel was privileged to in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Given a glimpse of what is going to unfold, but it couldn't be unfolded, couldn't go into play unless God did something to redeem back that which had fallen. What had fallen? Not just man, but all of creation has been affected by sin. What was God being worshipped for in chapter 4? Creation, right? The God who created everything. But then creation fell because man fell. We sinned. We separated ourselves from God. Now all of creation groans under the weight of that sin, waiting for the redemption to take place, the consummation, the, the, the fulfillment of all that God wants to do. And in that scroll is the method of methodology in which that's going to take place, and yet no one is worthy to take it and to open it except one. And who stands up amongst them all? One that looks like a lamb who has been to the slaughter. Can anybody shout out and tell me who that is? Jesus, absolutely. It is interesting that John describes him as a lamb who has gone to the slaughter. Does he still carry the marks of the crucifixion? Something to consider. 
Will we see Jesus and will we discover that he still carries the marks of the crucifixion, knowing that those marks are not there for himself but for us? Holy cow, I'm not going to be able to stand just knowing that, just seeing that. Seeing that Jesus had to do what he had to do to redeem me. But at that moment of redemption, he did not only redeem himself, but he redeemed everything. And it moves into this final phase. The lamb is described in a very interesting way. He's described in a way that he has seven horns and seven eyes. Is that literal? No, it's figurative. The seven horns means complete authority and power. Horns were always a representation of power in the Old Testament. And the seven eyes meant that he was, uh, om- he was omniscient. He, he knew everything. Not only did the horns represent power, but it also meant royalty. And yet he was carried in such a way in which he was slain that that royalty and that power had been laid down. He took the form of a man He subjected himself to his own creation. Through the Father's will, he gave himself a ransom for many. It is so interesting to me that it would be at the hand of Jesus. And Jesus knew that he would be the one that would be instructed in this judgment. John tells us in John 5, 26 and 27, For the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him, that is his Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John knew the significance of this scroll. He knew that it meant everything. As one commentator wrote, he said this, John would have easily identified this type of document from the ancient world as the title deed or the last will and testament, an instrument of ownership that could be opened only by a legal redeemer or a rightful heir. In the ancient world, sealed scrolls with writing on both sides, often private contracts kept from the public. The inside of the scroll carried the details. The outside of the scroll carried a preface or an index showing what was the contents of the interior of the scroll. The seven seals, again, is something that would have been identified with the original readers there in the first century because Roman parchments were often sealed in such a way. According to Roman law, certain documents were required to be sealed by seven witnesses to keep them sealed and to make sure that no one broke those seals. Although the idea of seven seals as used here is undoubtedly governed by the symbolic use of the number seven in Revelation and signifies the absolute involatility of the scroll itself. It could not be broken in and of itself. One had to be worthy to break it and only one was worthy to break it and that was Christ himself. And in this occurrence, notice with me, in the grand finale of all things, we have one of 14 what's called doxologies in Revelation, a time where all of heaven breaks out in a loud worship and praise of God the Father and the Lamb. Notice with me in verse 9. They sing a new song which meant a new era was now being birthed. 
This is it. What the fallen world would see as judgment, the redeemed world would see as consummation, meaning all things are now being brought back to the way they were meant to be at the time that God created all things and that all things were good. But notice what it says here. He says in this new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For by you you were slain and your blood and your, uh, by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. And they shall reign on the earth, excuse me. Then I looked in verse 11, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and that means ten thousand of ten thousands, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. All of the adoration that had been directed to God the Father is now being directed to the Son, showing that the Son Himself was God Himself, that He is the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is God. And I heard every creature in heaven on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory mighty uh, might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. A new era begins. As Isaiah wrote in 42, verses 9 and 10, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. For they spring forth, and I tell you, uh, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the earth, uh, from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that it fills, and to the coastland and all the inhabitants of it. And here we find this last portion given to us to him who sits on the throne, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all fell down before him and said, Amen, so be it. The last thing to discover of heaven, the fourth element is that the Christ's exaltation will be perfect. The exalting of Christ in heaven will be perfect. And we who are redeemed from him are given to him to glorify him, to worship him for all eternity and exalt him for what he has done that we could not do for ourselves. This is a glimpse into heaven. This is what Christianity is all about. It would have been extremely encouraging to those who read it there in the first century, even though they were under a weight of such affliction, my God is in control of all things, and one day all things will be made right. Because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, and not only to take it, but to loosen its seals and to execute the events that take place within it. And that's where we'll move to next time, next week in chapter 6.
as the Lamb then takes this scroll and begins to loosen the seven seals. And in those seven seals, the judgments of God begin to be poured out upon fallen creation. And in this process of judgment, it is a period of time that must take place before the renewal of all things. Think of it this way. Just this last week, my wife and I were out walking, and we've noticed that in our local forest preserve, they've been doing a lot of clearing. They've burned a lot of areas of, of the uh, preserve. And you're like, why would they destroy all that there was, knowing that those burns were it was going to come back even more flourishing? That's what's going to happen. God's going to burn away all things. And what's going to come forth from it will be the way it was always meant to be. It's going to be even better. There will be no effect of sin, no effect of death in this new heaven and new earth that God will create. Not just ridding us of this, but changing it, transforming it into what it is yet still going to be. And it all begins with this. That's where it starts. And as we now work through the next portion of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, and 19 is the return of Christ, we are going to find these seven seals open. At the seventh seal, there will be seven more. And at the seventh one of that, there will be seven more. And after the myriad of 21, you're going to find a new heaven and a new earth. But it's going to be a horrific process as God judged the earth and holds it accountable and captures and restrains for a thousand years the one who has brought this about, Satan himself. And then new heavens and new earths that we are to enjoy for all eternity. So whatever you're going through tonight, whatever difficulties you face, remember God is on the throne. He's in control of all things. And if you have adopted the principle that Christ has laid for us, not my will, but your will be done, know this tonight, God's will will be done no matter what. Can we all say amen to that?